0: Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast.
1: Alert Medic 1 response...
0: Well, Josh, thank you for coming back. Yep. You can introduce yourself again.
1: Uh, I'm Josh. Uh, firefighter paramedic down in uh, the D.C. metro area uh, with the big department down there. And I'm also an Army medic. Don't know if I said that last time. But been doing that for 10 years, too. Thank you for your service. Yeah. <laughs> you can edit that one out. Well, we definitely <laughs>
2: just pissed off half of the audience. Okay. <laughs> Mike? Mike El-Warner, uh Paramedic. Don't do any of the firefighting stuff. but uh, Why not? I'll tell you what do you not want to be a hero I do not want to go into anything that's on fire that's definitely going to so get edited out high five that and uh, that that and going up like the the, the ladder and you talk get a ladder bit, yeah. truck not uh, not interested off the fire so you know what heights suck the line. <laughs> we should probably edit that whole front piece out <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't know how the, uh, did you say who you work for the uh, wonderful Maryland state police okay so you're okay with that being
0: absolutely okay I didn't know how that worked
2: no all good Okay. Cool. You Definitely.
0: So I we know, like fire. We were talking about EMS education before this podcast started. We were. And uh, I, I gotta ask. You brought up a good point, and I want to start with that topic. Okay. Of um, how EMS. Uh, well, you know what? I'll let you uh, start off by saying. Well, somebody said like Europe does. Was that you? Was yes. That you? yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Why don't you start? With
3: okay. That? So I, uh, I, I I had a postulation was my word and it's good word ride with me as we disembark into this voyage of uh free thought so the way ems education works in the united states you become an emt you have to meet some certain requirements of course every state's a little different because we don't have any kind of national unified standards at all. Uh however, uh we'll use the state of Maryland for example. Most places you have to have 150 calls or X amount of time, years as an EMT before you become a paramedic. My question was, why is that necessary? What if all of the EMT training was rolled into paramedic? It was a solid 2-year associate's degree program. And that's how it worked. I mean, you don't have to be a CNA before you're an RN. You don't have to be a PA before you're a physician. You don't have to be anything before you're a PA. I mean, am I wrong? Technically, you do. Do Te- you? Yeah, technically, you have to have a certain amount of service hours
0: in another profession. So, like, now that could be, like, physical therapy assistant. That could be a pharmacy technician. That could be an EMT. Okay. So, there is that requirement there. That was, that. was So, the original intent, and I'm trying to, like, not... Like screw up the audio here. I guess I'm number one, and I'm like talking really loud. But um, so originally it was meant to be for like armed forces, like medics okay. that came back from I believe Vietnam, right? You are correct. That um, that program was supposed to take folks that were already heavily experienced and give them a pathway for advanced clinical skills that maybe they were doing over there. And mm-hmm. I don't know the scope of the medics in Vietnam, but so I think what ended up happening though is there's now dilution by folks that are able to get into programs as like a PT assistant mm-hmm. or a pharmacy technician. And I was a pharmacy technician, but that I shouldn't I don't <laughs> count that as like clinical experience. Right. I mean, I learned the drugs, but I wasn't like hands-on with people. Right. So, but that's a straw man argument. Okay. Continuous. So, yeah. I mean,
3: to my point. So, let's let's back it down to nursing, okay? Sure. Because we want we want pay parity with nursing. We want sure. respect parity with nursing. Stuff like that, right? So, why why is our education? I mean, this, this is a whole thing, but why is our education situation so very different from nursing, mm. where we have prerequisite training levels, where we don't have degree requirements, where we have such a, a disparity? In prerequisites and just everything, mm-hmm. you know, like and I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I'm going to throw this over to Josh because Josh brought up that in Europe they do very th- they do, in Europe they do things very differently.
1: So they do. Uh, I I can't talk a whole lot to it, but having talked to uh, a English medic that works within the National Health Service, he said that paramedics go through a four-year bachelor's program Uh, i don't believe they need to be an emt before i think you can just come in straight off the street and want to do this and it is a requirement across the united kingdom i don't know about the rest of europe or the rest of the world but they all work into the National health service and they can go anywhere england scotland southern ireland or wales and be part of the national health service Northern Ireland. Whoops.
0: <laughs> and also Australia.
1: Australia, I think they do have yeah. a partnership with them. Yeah. That you can because still I
0: do. when I went to London and met up with a couple of medics, they were from, one of them was from Australia. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I know they do fellowships in, in Australia mm-hmm. too. Uh, so, um, and they come out as a paramedic. They have to have a four-year degree. It's mm-hmm. not like you can go to a random community college or agency program like it is here. You have to come out with this degree, and then you can practice anywhere within the National Health Service. And and to the point of being able to work within their entire um, pharmacological formulary where they can prescribe on scene. Sure. Sure.
3: Now, I know in the last shock index, we talked – Josh and I talked about some of the value and – importance of having degrees i know moose wasn't able to join us for that and i do want to talk about that again because i think that's a great discussion but what 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 would you guys think about talking about what should the core requirements to enter a paramedic program be and what's the value of those 150 runs or whatever it is based on the the program that you need to get into because my thought is that if you have a, a clinical experience deficit we can fix that by providing you clinical experience i think the minimums that the national registry sets out are absurdly low personally so yeah, I'll, I'll throw it over to you yeah, I'm sorry. Well, i
2: mean and that's one of my my biggest things with it you know, i'm a huge proponent of actually learning what you're going to be doing as opposed to just a quick super oh uh, you you were rocked it as an emt and now we're going to put you through this super accelerated program where you learned um nothing of substance in emt and you continue to learn nothing of substance to a higher degree of knowing your job and we just get you out there uh and yes we we a lot of these programs look at this this number for calls and stuff coming into a program but let's all be honest we've we've seen and we've ridden with the people that just signed the sheet off to where ideally you could just be a a permanent fixture on a seat in the back of an ambulance, hand your sheet over to the person that's gonna mark off that you did amazing and stuff like that. All fours, great job, sign and everything's good. So um to your thing, um what would be more of a benefit for me seeing you actually, you know, go out and take some like, you know, pre level classes or something like that. Something that shows that you started something Completing it, you know, excelled or or sees get degrees, kind of got through it. But, but an actual like, you know, education component versus just running a bunch of calls and stuff like that, that, you know, could have been, you know, a bunch of real low acuity things or whatever that really didn't do anything for you. And then challenge them in the actual program, um, but just see that they have dedicated their time to get ready to take that program so that you can kind of gauge how seriously they're going to take it. So,
3: I think you bring up a really good point, Mike. You, you brought up the preceptor who will just sign off and give you the, the fours on everything. So what do you guys think? What should the qualifications be to be a preceptor, and how do we hold those people accountable? Because I know where I work and where I've volunteered in the past, you know, it's a four- or eight-hour class. You sit through and then, hey, you're responsible for if these people screw up and they kill somebody, and good luck. Don't let them do that.
1: Yeah. So, Uh, I'm actually kind of working on this at my agency right now on how to change up our preceptor selection. Uh, Right now, we abide by the MIMS rule of two years as a Maryland provider, go through a uh, preceptor class, and you are a, quote-unquote, blessed-off preceptor. Do we have people that still precept that don't meet these requirements because of staffing and how every day works in the fire service? Yes, but we try and meet this goal, and we're trying to figure out how can we create good preceptors that will then also um, create good products or new paramedics in the end and some things that we're looking at and i've brought to the table with my agency is looking at the national like looking nationally how other agencies do it The the places that do it well every day and we know what those places are they're placed in places like texas and washington i'm not going to call them out by name but they do it pretty well they've been doing it well for years and see what they do to precept new paramedics and new employees mm-hmm. like a field training role and see how do you get these great products and then bring that in maybe even bring in there's a national field training class for ems that it's like a 40-hour class you can go to and learn how to be a mentor and then just in general I think the, hey, you've been a medic for two years, you're a preceptor now, needs to go away. It needs to be who wants to be a preceptor? Who wants to teach? Because not everyone can teach, not everyone can mentor. People may be great at their job, but they cannot teach, they cannot relate to people, they cannot be that mentor. And we can't just throw them in because that is going to create a bad product in the end.
3: So this brings up an interesting question. Um, where I work, there is a financial incentive to be a preceptor, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. On one hand, it encourages people who are interested to take on the responsibility. On the other hand, it encourages people who probably shouldn't be precepting to make a little extra money.
0: I'm just going to add one thing in here. Replace the word preceptor with paramedic, and a lot of agencies require it for promotion. So
3: That's true, and I I, I don't like that either.
1: So. We have floated the idea of a compensation. Uh, Monetary or leave hours, who knows? Ooh, I'll take the leave hours. Yeah. It's always great. Uh, But you do bring up the the point of it will bring in people that are just there for the money. Just like if you add medic bonus pay, it will bring people in just for the money. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, in other agencies like Mike, a pretty good assignment, you know, to become a medic and go fly every day. You know? Um, you're going to bring in people that are just there for the status, just there for the money, just there for not the right thing. And I think you have to kind of develop methods of either testing or maybe uh, re- multiple levels of recommendation, whether it's your station officer, direct supervisor, or maybe even you know, for my agency, the EMS duty officer and your station officer. Hey, does this person, do you think they would do well as a preceptor or as a mentor?
0: I think that's important and uh, coupled with continuous vetting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Like there should be an active evaluation process that is um, pushing the student to review the um, and I'm quiet again. Why am I quiet again? Um, that's stu- that's pushing the student to review their preceptor without uh, any risk of um Repercussions, right? Because, I mean, we all know folks that maybe were initially motivated, right? And then for whatever reason just lost interest. And also, maybe uh, there might also be circumstances where people were initially pushed to be that preceptor and then were found to not be competent.
3: Right? And maybe there should be some sort of additional continuing education and leadership training requirements on these people, too. In so far as, okay, you want to be a preceptor, that's great, but you need to show that you're on top of the latest science. So, okay, we're we're moving to point-of-care ultrasound in the field. Well, that may not be coming out to your jurisdiction for another six months, 12 months, two years, but you want to be a preceptor. You need to be on top of this. You need to show us that you've taken a class on this or, uh, you know, reviewed your Maybe a, you know, college-level A&P class or, you know, whatever it is, you know, additional EMR. Or get a education. degree. <laughs> or you should get a degree. <laughs> Speaking a of idea. which, I saw on Facebook or a social media site. <laughs> can we say Facebook? I don't know. But it was a large career department in this country that was offering an additional 3% for an associate's degree, an additional 6% for a bachelor's
1: degree. Now, that's not a whole is this, lot. Is this in a big country town, country music town? It may be. Yes. It may I be. saw that as well.
3: That's not, you know, an insane amount, but I think that's a step in the right direction. You know, it, I think it's a step above saying, okay, you need X number of college credits to promote or X degree to promote. I, I think that's good. I, th- I think those are good requirements. But I like the idea that we're encouraging our entry level people to have higher education. Let me ask you this though: What if it's in basket weaving?
0: Is, I mean, is the you got to start
3: somewhere. <laughs>
0: see, uh, 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 see, so that's what my issue is, and I, I really have an issue with the the big money government operation that has become but higher education, right? So th- wait, wait, let me finish. Okay, so uh, we, I think if we just push people to have a, and nothing against any degree, for the record, I don't want to get random emails saying that I like. I'm like a STEM elitist, but like you are really ticked off. The you basket hate basket weaving. I have a PhD <laughs> in basket weaving, and <laughs> so I really so did. You get it take online? It yeah. uh, I did. Well, he, uh, honestly, online's
2: fine too. He tried but. it at Pinterest one time, failed. <laughs> he wasn't happy, and now he's just got this vendetta.
3: University of Pinterest. Because Sorry, I, no, 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 no.
0: But like, I think what I oh, like, I think there is value in higher education. What has higher education got me? Uh, I think student loans. Uh, luckily not many, Ooh, uh, cause uh, especially the last couple of years I paid myself, They're all sucks, getting but forgiven. Yeah. well, that <laughs> sorry. Uh, in November, We're not gonna go there. in November, uh, no, so. <laughs> you mean tomorrow? <laughs> Funny how that works. But no. So, um, it, it gave me a lot of the skills on how to learn how to critically think so on and so forth. So I think that's the important part, but I don't think all degrees are made equally. Right. No. I mean, I, I, I really think that uh, and again, I don't know what I don't know. Maybe they do, but I know for a fact that my biology bachelor's degree got me that critical thinking. I don't think that ma- all degrees are made the same. I would argue even that not all programs and colleges are made the same. Well, it's 100% course.
1: correct. I think my thing with people getting a degree and not being specific on what the degree is, is what you were just hitting on as a critical thinking, but it's also some basic skills like the English class. Uh, you know, most degrees require a sociology or a psychology class. Stuff like that to, like, kind of broaden your mind a little bit to be able to think and maybe think outside of your, your role and your, your your spot in life. Uh, and be able to, once again, back to the English thing, being someone that QA's reports, being able to write a report <laughs> oh mm-hmm. with grammar yeah. and punctuation. Mm-hmm. I'm just, 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 just saying. capitalize everything. What are your, your thoughts
0: on instead of requiring a bachelor's degree for entry, a lot of places. I don't know if uh, do we do we we said your agency, right? Yep. I don't know if state police requires it, but I know some agencies I've seen that require a certain certification within so many to- months of hire. What if we had that incentive of hey, within four years or six years, you need to finish a bachelor's degree, and we'll e- we'll even facilitate paying for it if it's within one of these areas that are beneficial to
1: the department. Like and then we,
0: and then we require. I don't know how that would work, but we require service on the back end
1: as well. I think I, Mike can speak to that very well because his agency already does it.
2: Yeah, so <coughs> oh, so we give you the opportunity in the academy, uh, regardless of what you're coming in with. Uh, but if you don't have the degree, say you were a cadet and you got in this uh, fairly young and and you did everything, um, learning the job or whatever, you, know, you, you started your career path or whatever, you finally get into the academy because you're going to finally turn the magic age. Uh, they give you... Uh, ideally an associate's degree in, um, you know, in policing, you know, go over forensics, go over your basic kind of prerequisite, your English or math, you take entry levels into the program to find out where you fit in and what class you need to take. And by the time you graduate the academy, You've graduated with an uh, associate's degree, and they also give you other financial incentives for people that take the time. Uh, Certain promotions you can't get without a bachelor's degree, Mm -hmm. master's degree, so on. But they give you the opportunity and provide this financial incentive for, hey, we want you guys to go out there and get it in something, Mm -hmm. whether it's directly relative to the job. Um, or it's just something that interests you or whatever, but it, it causes you to go and commit to something else and just better yourself and whatever, you know, basket weaving uh, might get you or, or yeah. what other uh, degrees you look at. So
3: this I mean, this really and I love that you said that, Moose, because this really goes back to something I harp on a lot. And I know I talk about this incessantly is parity with nursing. That's how nursing does it. Nursing. You get your associates as an RN. And then a lot of the times, this is what my wife did. She went to go work for a hospital. They said, you have to get your BSN. We'll help you pay for it, but you got to stay here for X number of years. And that's exactly how that works in a a lot of cases. So there's no reason that EMS couldn't do something similar. I think I have a reason they couldn't. Why? And I don't agree with it. But what's the
0: average dollar amount that a hospital makes off of a nurse versus what's the average dollar amount that a a fire department makes off of a paramedic in terms of profit?
3: I don't know. I imagine it's way less.
0: I imagine it's way. I would, uh, I would argue that operating costs are way higher on the hospital side, uh, depending on the size of the hospital. Right. But I, I imagine that the profit or the potential for profit weight may, may be way higher I think it, what that also comes down to is compensation mm-hmm. that w- Medicare Medicaid provides the EMS versus healthcare.
3: Well, that's a whole nother
0: rabbit hole. Exactly, <laughs> uh, especially with like a lot of the, like current pilots and stuff that are going on. So, yeah. uh, I, well, I, but to cons- I think that answers one of the question one of the reasons why that. Structure doesn't exist. Also, the compensation. I mean, we're talking. Your agency does do it, but I would argue that I imagine most places don't do that. uh, Offer incentives for uh, higher education.
1: No, most don't. Right? I would say I would agree, but I I will say I think I've seen it more lately that there's recruiting ads. You know, just the flyers that get passed around on social media of places that are offering some kind of financial compensation for having a degree and it it, sometimes it's very minimal and sometimes it's like ken brought up the agency that just had theirs go out that's a six percent for a bachelor's degree which it worked out to a couple hundred a couple grand Mm -hmm. you know a year that's that's a pretty decent uh compensation
3: we have to remember though we're talking about the industry as a whole we're not just talking about the big city fire department or Mm -hmm. the big county fire department you're also talking about the IFT company down the street that makes good money, but they're a very different structure and organization. And what's the incentive there for people to further their education and for companies to to encourage that kind of behavior? And I don't know that I have a really good answer for that. I mean, I think I think the benefits of the education are the same, but I think the structure of private commercial companies is such that you're less likely to see as much of a push for those sorts of educational stipulations. Well
2: with yeah, with that and I mean a lot of those places also, most people are going to use those as that entry level because for whatever reason, when we're looking for career departments and they want somebody with experience, that is pretty much the only form out there that they can like pull off of it. Mm-hmm. So you got a lot of people using those as like stepping stones. So I think to a degree you know, for some of those people that commit their time to it. And that's, that's what they love to do. God bless them. Uh, and they want to get that education to kind of like build up people around them or, or for their own like self-worth. But I think a lot of them, they probably see just like a stepping stone in regards to it. Hey, these people are going to be out of here as soon as something, you know, greater comes along or whatever. Let's just keep the the perpetual cycle of you know, picking them off the line right when their card gets uh, issued to them or whatever, mm-hmm. and employing them.
0: And for the folks not listening that are, that are listening that are not from Maryland, in Maryland, uh, private companies are exclusively allowed to do private ambulance. Uh, uh, excuse me, interfacility transport. So, uh, when it comes to public safety um, or like nine one one stuff, uh, it's almost always fire departments and or EMS jurisdictions uh, that are like uh, mun- not either municipal based, county based, so on and so forth. Um, uh, I I feel like uh, the only reason I'm saying this because your last comment might confuse folks from like California
1: who like have like the private companies that do both. We, we uh, are very AM, AMR. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. We are very unique here in Maryland. Uh, you know, once again back to social media, following many different pages. There's definitely a, in most places a divide between EMS and fire, but here, fire takes care of EMS exclusively, or at least a third-party-like third, uh, third agency through the county government or town government, city government, whatever it is. But there's no, like, like Moose said, and he's the expert on it,
3: <laughs>
1: uh, there is no private agency that provides 911 on a regular basis.
0: Yeah, unless they're contracted with a uh, public service entity. Yep. Which we do see now. Yeah, that we do. That we do. Um I want to go back to what you were asking. That, so, the initial question <laughs> we, we we jumped like fifteen topics, we but this initial question we did disembark from your original to- uh, question, which was, uh, "What's the? I mean, what's the purpose of the hundred and fifty calls? Do we do we think it's necessary or not? I know you answered, but I, I want to hear everyone else's thoughts."
1: So, I think we got like a pretty good group here for this answer. We all are involved in instructing in paramedicine and EMS and fire in some way. Uh, whether it's through community college our agencies or uh, higher levels of learning. Um, And so my agency, we, we abide by the 150 calls uh, and that's partially because we do offer a volunteer option of our paramedic class. Uh, The guys, the guys and gals that come in from the career side are going to have the 150 calls pretty easily. Um, But I, and I hope cap if you hear this. I don't know if you listen to this. <laughs> and I hope I'm not giving away anything from the meeting the other day, but uh, we are thinking about trying to offer an option of an A&P class once you've been accepted to the program uh, so that we can make sure that our students coming in have that baseline understanding of A&P so that they can have that paramedic knowledge that Ken and I, you know, we talked about last uh, shock index, about being able to understand what we're doing to the human body when we give adenosine amiodarone we cardiovert we pace we innovate we bag too hard we bag too little all this stuff how we're affecting the body positively and negatively and if you don't have that ANP understanding you're not going to fully understand what you're doing skilled jockey <laughs>
0: dude
1: dude come on <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. We said it last time. You edited it out. Hopefully, <laughs> I haven't even touched <laughs> the audio yet. But, but uh, uh, yeah, no, we out. have <laughs> to add these. God. We have to add these requirements. Otherwise, we're going to get people that come in and have very little experience, and it's going to show in their academics in class, and it's going to show in their abilities in the field, both in precepting and then later on outside <laughs> of the educational setting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And going to your point, when when they have nothing to fall back on because they have no no actual major understanding, they're going to go back to following just what is their limitations in yep. the protocol, and do just that, mm-hmm. and then write their report so vague that you ain't able to gig them on anything because they wrote it in a way that they didn't um, you know out themselves, but they clearly haven't done nearly enough of what they should have done.
1: You know, we. Uh A lot of people pride themselves on their their paramedic status. I mean, I'll be honest. I I enjoy being a paramedic. I I enjoy having that card and being able to do the things I do. But we also need to make sure that when we're showing up that we know what we're doing, how we're doing it, and how we're going to help our customer, our patient that day, and what's going to happen. And if if we're showing up not understanding that, then we are providing a disservice.
0: So... uh, I 100% agree with you. I want to play devil's advocate. Not that I actually believe this, but I do believe there's some merit to it. I was told that the requirement of the 150 calls was to make sure, and and I know you touched on this a little bit too, to have some sort of experience as the primary solo provider, right? And I think there is benefit from that because what do you learn as a BLS provider? What's the most important skill you learn? I, I would argue the basic life support skills that we were talking about earlier that, a lot of paramedics don't have, right? Uh, and also, you learn the definition of sick versus not sick, right? So you kind of get that working knowledge. Um, I guess the question would be: Do you get the same value in clinicals in a paramedic program? I, I think for both questions, there's variability on where you are, right? Because I, I, I,
2: I, I definitely agree. And I've you know, seen it firsthand. Yeah. Two different departments at the same ER. One can do anything and everything. The other one is literally kneecapped in there for a visual purpose only.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's definitely yeah. a program based. You know, my program from day one of the paramedic program in my in my jurisdiction or agency, they leave at four o'clock and go to a station on day one, and from five until seven o'clock the next morning, they're running calls, mm-hmm. and that happens after every class. So they are getting clinical experience from day one until the day that they are cleared and credentialed by the medical director. Mm-hmm. So the, the career students get, uh, I think the number we figured out was close to 700 hours of ambulance clinical time alone. And actually I, I take that back. That is during their residency. That is during their three months of getting polished once they've had their card. Mm-hmm. So add on another six months. Yeah. They're getting a lot of time. but then there's other programs when they have to call and schedule with preceptors and find out where can I ride and when does it work in my schedule. And so if they're they got family demands, work demands, life demands, then they might not get a whole lot of experience before they sit, test, get a card, and in some places, oh you have a card? Cool get on the box mm-hmm.
3: this really goes to something we talked about before the show started and what I'm about to say is Ken Sanders opinion alone not the opinion of alert medic one but the clinical requirements set forth by the National Registry are absurdly low in my opinion you should be doing so much more than you know what is it 25 capstone clinicals you know or 50 or, or whatever it is I mean
1: I believe the sh- number is 35.
3: 35? Yes. So you should you should be doing exactly what Josh just said. You should be going from day one and riding an ambulance or being in the ED or being in the ICU or being on the peds floor. Or where, I don't care where it is. You should be somewhere seeing patients and encountering patients and getting hands-on assessment experience with actual sick people. And you can learn what sick versus not sick looks like in that time, in my opinion. Um, But I think the one thing you do lose by not having those 150 calls, unless you have good preceptors uh, who force you to do this, um, at least until you get to capstone, if you do your capstone correctly, is the leadership experience and the team management experience. I think that is the real key thing that you lose by not being in charge for a significant period of time because at some point you have to learn to be a leader and not a follower. Be, you know, once you get on that ambulance as a paramedic, there may not be anyone coming to bail you out. You know, it might Absolutely. be you.
2: Yeah, and that's, you know, it goes back to us talking about like, you know, preceptors quality, are they chasing the money to become to it? Or do they not get any, uh, you know, any other incentive other than that, just to, to step mm-hmm. up and be a preceptor. Um, but no absolutely and, and that's one of the the biggest things i you know i, I personally try to drill on people is you know that the earliest mindset you can get in is to being able to look at the bigger picture instead of getting you know uh dug into that little task or whatever that's taking your eye off everything and and delegating at this point in time with with a lot of people coming up or whatever is hard for them to do and you get a lot of preceptors that still kind of they let them run the call but they're kind of like right in their pocket about it and and they're not really letting them have that like you know sink or swim moments or whatever where Mm -hmm. they got to make that decision they kind of like co-works them through the call or whatever and and it shows by the time they get out and they're running those calls by themselves and there's nobody else to call um to come out and kind of help them out or whatever you know not having that that mental capacity to pull that trigger and make that decision you know leaves them hesitant to do certain interventions and certain drugs and you have a partner just standing there with his hands like out waiting to do something or whatever but you've never really developed that because you didn't have the right type of person to kind of have you have to be in the hot seat or whatever and make those decisions so yeah but it's it's definitely a, a hard thing to to figure out and what's best and there's so many facets to it in its entirety you know the 150 calls being worth you know more than just something on paper whatever to get into a program yeah you know i think when you
3: look at what is the responsibility of a good paramedic program or any paramedic program should be to prepare an individual to be in a situation where they have a a brand new first day emt partner (laughs) in the middle of nowhere with a literal crashing child, not not a kid in cardiac arrest, but a kid that you have to stop from going yep. into cardiac arrest, and that brand new paramedic and brand new EMT need to be able to handle that situation by themselves without help for yeah. whatever time frame it
2: takes. To, asthmatic to dip, get help, the yeah, anaphylactic kid or yeah. whatever that you have to pull the trigger and make decisions. And
0: yep, I mean, I would argue that's almost a harder. I mean, you already said this, but it's a harder patient
3: than the kid in arrest. Exactly. Yep. Yep, that's um, that's what I think, and and those those calls would challenge experienced paramedics, you know. I mean, but at the same time, like that's a reality. You don't get to pick and choose as a new paramedic what your first call is going to be, you know. So that that exact situation has happened to somebody out there, you know. Oh, yeah. Yep, probably more than once. So um, I, I hope whatever program they went to prepared them for it.
0: So I wanna, unless there's other topics to talk about or other stuff to talk about on this topic. I wanna change the topic slightly to uh motion slash resolution number twenty two dash resolution dash thirteen. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The whole NRM EMT scandal that occurred.
1: The accreditation? Yeah. Or the fact that they also just changed another thing.
0: Well so that
1: yeah, I wanna talk about that.
0: But um the most recent thing is that now everything can be asynchronous online, correct? For Con Ed. Was that that was that like yesterday or something? It was, like,
1: it was in the past week. I yeah. saw it on social media. Yeah.
0: The what I'm talking about is a resolution which ended up getting voted down, but the resolution on updated eligibility criteria for initial EMS education, which was basically um, proposing that uh, paramedic programs could either because uh, originally it was like CAPSI, right? Oops, sorry, it was mm-hmm. like you had to be CAPC or accredited, and then they added the little thing where it, it could be or state approved. Mm-hmm. So then, like uh, like a bunch of like educational like Limer Education came out with a public statement. A bunch of other people came out with a public uh, statement. So are you, are you guys aware
3: of this? And what are your thoughts
0: yeah. on it? Yeah, so you and I talked about this. We, a did, we bit did
1: talk last about time. this a little so last time. Um, I think maybe Mike's opinion.
3: Yeah, let's start with Mike, and
2: then we can circle back around to us. So I'm not completely familiar. I just seen something recently on an issue with what was being acceptable national registry wise or whatever. You bit of a brief synopsis as to what uh, the latest and greatest coming out is. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, now it's that got the 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 proposal got shut down. But okay. basically, what they were saying was they were allowing an avenue of approval for EMS like a, a basically paramedic programs, to be state approved. So uh, you wouldn't have to follow the CAPC standard. You could follow the CAPC standard or whatever your state said. So your state could say, oh, we have these low bar requirements, and you would a- end up underselling, uh, I would say underselling the population yeah, so by a potentially so less credentialed paramedic.
2: They were trying to take it from a national thing to letting the states decide exactly, like what yeah. they would think.
0: But is that correct? Is that, Okay. Yeah.
3: yeah. Basically – I mean, taking the the role of higher education out of paramedic yeah. education, in my sure. opinion,
0: or at least like s- national standards that right. ha- require you know, all, like you said, already minimal, yeah.
2: Yeah. Requirements. which is I, for my my personal opinion on it, it is you know. It, you proposed a, a great comparison, right? Because everybody becomes a paramedic. A lot of them always compare like themselves to like nurses, and and oh, you know, why don't we get like the same respect? And you know, obviously, a big thing is training, right? Mm-hmm. We we don't hold ourselves to a higher standard regarding training, which is why things are getting closed down and shut down left and right, training wise, because we can't get classes off the ground because nobody wants to show up to them. Um, but I don't know. It's just for me. It, Lowering that standard, you're going to lower it even though we'll we'll just, you know, we'll make this little change and that little change until it becomes a problem where you need, you know, boots on the ground, you need people staffing the units and stuff like that. And you realize that the bigger pull to pull from is the one that's not meeting those requirements. And you just start chipping away until you've gotten to yourself to such a point where you can't go back anymore. You can't start, like, telling these people, hey, we need you to start, like, you know, up in your game or we need you to start, like, you know, you know, going out and looking at, at doing this much more education. It's just, you know, we we always talk about standardizing things and, and holding everybody to, you know, a higher accountability and stuff like that. Uh, for us as a profession, I just – I think letting an, an individual state, although it may have the best intentions just to provide coverage, might find themselves chipping away until they get to a point where – not benefiting anybody by kind of where they, the hole they dug themselves into well yeah.
1: as a libertarian
3: now. Okay. <laughs> sorry go ahead josh uh
1: so you know something you said right at the end mike you know letting the states figure out what works best for them um i think it could lead to some very low standards in states that ha- are very spread out um, geographically um and please Texas don't come for me I'm married to a Texan so it's okay I'm I'm going to talk about Texas for a moment here in Texas as a firefighter there are no true state standards like there are here in Maryland you do not have to take a college level or a a class to be an interior firefighter they allow the individual station to train someone and then clear them as an interior firefighter to then do the job because it is it is and it's because it's so spread out. There are sp- places where it is hours to get to some kind of education outside of you know elementary, middle, and high school. And so these places don't have the ability to get people trained like they would in Maryland where we have MIFRI that handles all of our statewide training. It says if you're going to be an interior firefighter, you at least have to have these things.
2: And at least they regionalize it to yeah. an extent with availability.
1: But then that bringing it into that state can make the decisions like oh hey here's the minimum for middle of nowhere it'll just say texas i'm talking about texas right now to have a paramedic program because we know you guys are having trouble getting paramedics or emts or or whatever it is that you need and now we're going to see a drop in the uh level of not the level of care but the uh Efficacy of the care, the the uh, how good it actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if
2: the guy, if the guy's teaching it already can't get the education and, and and be well read into newer standards and practices and stuff like that, they're teaching ideally what they're familiar with to to new fault, no fault of their own. So, yep.
3: so I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, Josh. I think there is going to be a drop in the level of care if if we decentralize paramedic education and standards because. What's going to happen is as we lower training standards, skill proficiency and knowledge is going to go down. Oh, no, no. That's and what th- I was saying. Oh, I misunderstood you.
1: Oh, yeah. If you decentralize it, it's going down. Oh,
2: I'm okay. a, I misunderstood you, too. Yeah, yeah. okay. Right. It's because you guys got lost with a mustache. It, t- yeah. it happens <laughs> that,
1: typically. So it is a beautiful mustache. It's just right over here at the top. <laughs> you know, it just moves <laughs> <Yeah>. up <laughs> and down. Eyes are up here, guys. So, <laughs> uh, no, no, definitely. If you decentralize the, the education standard, you – Drop the accreditation standards, the uh, the product in the end will get worse. Yep, one hundred percent.
3: And I think what what you would see is medical directors pulling skills and drugs until you get to the point that a paramedic is basically barely even a paramedic. You know, it's going to be like an ambulance driver, an ambulance driver. <laughs> you know, like you'll be lucky if you get an AEMT. You know. <laughs> so let me ask you guys this: What about
0: skills? That are already not performed a lot, wouldn't you argue? Again, devil's advocate. Not saying that this has anything. You really like playing that role. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) He (laughs) does. I know. Well, I don't want this to be a podcast of everyone agreeing with each other. That's kind of a boring podcast.
2: (laughs) His sole purpose is to just disagree with everybody. Stir the pot. The um,
0: there's a term for that. Uh, it in. I don't know. Uh, I'm forgetting the term, but um. This has nothing to do with decentralization, but um, wouldn't you argue that skills like uh, intubation, other skills like advanced skills, aren't done often at all anyway, and that allows for like weakening of skills because everyone can do an advanced skill?
1: It one hundred percent does, and it pains me to say that. Yes, and it, it kind of does, but um, w- this is the hot topic right now in the past I don't know, five years, I'd say, since part and Airways came out, part two, I think, yeah. Came out and said that...
0: referring to like massive research studies. Yes. For folks that don't know what that is. (laughs) Yes.
1: Take a look. You need to read them. But um, where they said, if you don't do the training, if you don't do it a lot, then you're not going to be good when it does come time to do it because it is a high-acuity, low-frequency skill. Uh, There's a couple that are more low-frequency but innovation for some of us can be a very low frequent event. Mike, that, I mean, that, that's, that's something that is his bread and butter in his agency. Yeah. So with, (laughs) not so much. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and
2: and with that, I have the, the absolute pleasure of, you know, at the time doesn't seem that way, but um, we, we do a lot of training and stuff, have a lot of continuing education uh, within um, aviation. and, you always have somebody, you know, QAing or, you know, use the UE scope. You have people contacting you and going over it and stuff. What can you do better? We have every section has its own mannequin, stuff like that. You have equipment available to you to where you're constantly doing it. But the, in the, in the con ed, you know, you're going over the stuff. You're going over airway. I mean, that, that's really what we pride ourselves on. We do all our clinicals and stuff like that, peds and adults. So, I mean, we're always reevaluating each other and ourselves and stuff like that and, you know for us luckily we have the ability to go on these high acuity calls and stuff like that where we find ourselves innovating, um quite frequently and stuff some sections a little on the the, the lower side and stuff but but still it, I, you know one thing that we have is the ability to keep training to keep kind of you know calling each other out and recognizing, Hey, we need to work on this. We need to do this differently or whatever. Or you're kind of like, you know, you're, you're going through the motions. We need to get better. Um, but yeah, it, airways, a, a huge thing that typically see or whatever at work that is grossly, uh, either underutilized. So then when the time comes, it's this super high acuity emotional call and stuff like that. And you're going to resort back to what you remember about training, which, you know, The last time you went over airway might have been when you were in paramedic class or whatever EMT, and you might have not taken any time to go and learn anything. You know, University of Maryland with their advanced airway class, absolutely amazing class, Um, really take you out of your comfort zone and stuff. But, no, absolutely, It's, it's, it's one of those things where, and again, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, you'll write your report or you'll do something on the calls oh uh, well you know time to the hospital or thing that and it's just under the rug nobody bats an eye because you know for the most part nobody wants a monday morning quarterback even though some people qa wise do but when when they can kind of justify why they didn't do it and stuff like that whether it was right or wrong you know we don't you know hold them to any kind of standard in most cases and say oh hey let's uh you know, let's do some training or whatever on this, or we don't really check and balance each other a lot out in the field. And I think it's a, a huge problem sometimes.
0: So, I mean, but what you have basically described is a small group of clinicians that perform a skill uh, regularly because uh, there's the same amount of opportunities, but if you have a smaller number of clinicians, you have, you give those folks more opportunity. Right? Absolutely. Uh, that begs the question, is there room for that uh, another tier of paramedic. Josh?
1: Yes.
2: Like mega paramedic?
1: I think you're thinking more advanced practice paramedic. Sure. Or, you know, bringing now in this state, bringing critical care into the realm of nine one one there. I mean, there's lots of agencies that use critical care in nine one one outside of the state. Um, and I think with, and I don't want to get on the topic of community paramedicine because we can spend hours on that. But with a push of per- community paramedicine, the evolving healthcare system that we are finding ourselves in where we're sapped for personnel and, in- and, in- yeah. and personnel, money, supplies, whatever, and inundated with an influx of calls, it seems like, within the past three, four years. I think everyone has gone up drastically. I think we need to be looking at how do we provide uh, a higher level of care in the field because the hospitals may not be able to provide it in a timely manner. You know, Um, I know parts of my jurisdiction have very long wait times. I know Ken's jurisdiction is notorious for long wait times. Um, And is there things that we can be doing – to provide high level care in the field, you know, say antibiotics, uh, vents, you know, more widespread use of advanced airway techniques, ultrasound, stuff like that, you know.
0: So what does that look like if right now there's no education requirements that you would require a bachelor's degree?
3: Eight hour certification class that you take and you're out in 4 <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, It would actually, I think we'd have to see, um, I think, and this is the opinion of Josh, I think we would see, we could see an easier transition to bringing an advanced practice level slash critical care to paramedics before we could get people on board with degrees. Because it doesn't require as much time. And we can, we can now, yes, there is a knowledge gap that's going to be lost because we don't have that degree or we don't have that knowledge. But being able to train someone to do ultrasound, to maybe do some in-home prescriptions of some minor formularies uh, or teaching to do uh, a range of advanced practice skills would be easier managed than...
0: And what's the training requirement you're proposing?
1: I, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. You know, is it a formal uh, critical care class? Is it, you know, UMBC's critical care class? Is it University of Florida's that I'm going through right now, which is a semester long? Or is it an in-house, hey, this is what our agency, our state, county, whatever, is comfortable with teaching a select group of people to be able to perform in the field? Um there are agencies that are doing that right now to call them out. Austin Travis, they have provider levels. All of us sitting right here right now working for them would be a provider level five, which is your, your paramedic. Well, they have a provider level six, which in, you have to have critical care or flight paramedic certification to get to that level, to train, to do it. And it involves more meds, vents, whole blood, Uh, finger thoracostomies, all kinds of stuff like that. So I think it would be an in-house built program most likely.
3: I just think it would be nice if we had a strong national EMS organization who would advocate for these kinds of things (laughs) and who would set standards that we could all follow.
1: Or all these different ones come together to work together. You know, ISBC, NAEMT. N R E M T and A E M S <laughs> P. There's there's a couple different acronyms out there that don't work together, all the time.
3: And why not? I mean, are there political issues between them? Like, they, what's the reality? They can't get all of their.
2: Um names on a t-shirt so <laughs> it's not gonna it's not gonna work out like.
0: and i'll be the first one to say i mean i, I recognize the acronyms but it, it kind of ends there i mean i, I kind of naemsb has a podcast um which uh actually I, I had reached out to them to do one uh and i feel like they wanted to do one why wouldn't we do that Probably COVID.
2: He went on all like devil's advocate and like argued against them coming on. It was, it was, but no, yeah, Uh,
0: but like I, I, uh, yeah, it does beg the question. Why, why isn't there more collaboration or is there an, or are we just not aware?
3: Could you imagine if all of these organizations got together and said, you know what we think? We think that by 2035 to be a paramedic, you should have an associate's degree. Could you imagine if they all did that? Like, number one, people would lose their ever-loving minds because, God forbid, we require any sort of a degree to be an EMS clinician. I don't love the word, but I'll use it. We know. Um,
0: You don't like the word
3: EMS clinician? I had no idea. (laughs) But uh, but I'm serious, though. Like, what if all these organizations said, hey, we want to up our standards to be with the rest of the developed world? And we're just going to start easy. We're just going to start with an associate's degree. And by 2035, every paramedic program to graduate, you got to have a and You got to have, you know, biology, maybe chem, you know, English, public speaking, you know, all these things. Like just things that you need to be an effective paramedic anyway. You know, you have to know how to communicate. You have to know how to write. You have to understand how people think and what they do and how the body works. I, I know this is crazy talk. <laughs>
2: Absolutely Moose
3: crazy looks talk. like he's ready to throw he, a big I devil's am advocate he, out
0: here. I am. He's, he's, yes. coming, uh, he, he's, he's coming here. With, he's that chom- chom- with that. T- he's chom- got the hammer. <laughs> he is. He's ready. Come on, he's Moose. He's ready to smash you. What do <laughs> county administrators, city administrators, uh, I don't know, state administrators, you know, what do they have to deal with that hospital administrators don't? What do they have to deal with? Uh, unions, for one. Uh, unions? I would say politicians and not Budgets. hospital board members. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that even if that, that w- these groups got together, right? So they're private organizations, right? All these, for, for the most part, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. They got together, got an opinion together, went and testified on Capitol Hill, right, to whoever. Uh, I think there would be an equally strong lobby, that would be from the representative class that would say, where are we getting the money for this? And I think it would get, realistically, I think it would get, if it was added as an amendment to some random bill, it would get squashed in subcommittee. and before not saying it, it has
3: know. to be a legal action. I'm saying that the, the private organizations involved in EMS should advocate for Oh, this. I know. I agree with that. Um, I, I I guess I'm
0: just, uh, I, I'm 100% agreeing with you. I'm just saying, I know. like, uh I think this is the jaded part of me that's like, and, and look, how do they, we actually they make would, work. and yeah. I,
3: if memory serves, it's been a long time since I've read up about this, but I believe when nursing went through the same things that we're going through now, when they started pushing for degree programs and the BSN and all that, I think there were there was similar kickback, mm-hmm. um, be, oh sure. because all of a sudden there weren't nurses coming out of school, like this created a major staffing shortage,
0: mm-hmm.
3: but in the end. Look what's happened to nursing. It's a, a respectable, well-paid profession now. Now you can be an NP. Now you can be an NP. Do you want to talk about mid-levels? Is that where we're going? No. no. Not, today. <laughs> <laughs> not today. Not today. I
0: Although, if I would argue that I know we, we don't even have a paramedic bachelor's degree. Well, we do. But if, a certain, if certain education programs had a, ma- a clinical master's degree at their e- EMS educational programs, like they do other master's degrees. Paramedic mid-levels? <laughs> sure, but like I would even take a clinical. Ed- like, uh, imagine I'm not going to because I work for them. I'm not going to call them out by name. But imagine if uh, an educational program that was a higher university, you know, higher lo- level of education, or hi-
1: higher I don't work for them. If UMBC offered <laughs> a master's degree,
0: <laughs> yeah, in, in, in cl- a clinical track, yes, right? yeah,
1: they offer one in the management track because yeah. I have the bachelor's form of it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but. They should offer. Well, because they
0: have a management track, they have a public policy track, and they have an education track, right? Yes. What if they had a clinical track? What if it was a bunch of docs coming in and teaching you advanced level stuff, and it was a clinical edge? Georgetown has a physiology master's program. So many colleges have, I believe Hopkins has like a clinical, maybe not Hopkins, one of them. What if if there was one, but specific to critical care? I was looking for similar programs a couple of years ago. The only ones I could find were in, in Europe, and they were they were I, I would not qualify because yeah. like they're meant for folks that have bachelor's degrees from there that want to be those advanced level PA level
1: paramedics that ride around in cars with physicians. there. I mean, yeah. it's almost like that agent that uh, organization has their name on a critical care program. They do that they could put into okay, a master's okay, program.
0: Batteries, yeah. Okay, yeah. I replaced them before we started. Okay. Yeah.
1: But, yeah, like, it's almost like they could take that and translate that into a clinical master's. Is that
0: that a program that they, I mean, I I guess we could talk offline about this, but is that a program that they own, or is that something that they teach that other colleges Because, like, that certification you can get from other places.
1: So the UMBC program is made by them and then can be sent out to other agencies to Uh, administer and give. You don't have to take it at UMBC. You don't have to take it with a... UMBC instructor. It's it's they created it and then sent it out.
0: But the central hub
1: is still UMBC, like across the yeah, nation. I've seen uh, I've seen their slides and other stuff I've done, and it's all UMBC on it. And so, huh. um, I mean, so I'm going through the University of Florida program, which is a semester long program, which okay. is a certificate. It's not part of a master's or anything like that, but it can be, you know, a semester. Type class mm-hmm. that you could work into. Here's the critical care portion. Okay, next semester, you know this stuff with um, other doctors coming in. Mm-hmm. Hey, go to the ICU for more than ten hours. Yeah. Hey, um, you need to do a project and you need to present a grand rounds every semester of your yeah. masters of something that you saw in the ICU or in ride-alongs or whatever. Mm-hmm and present on it
0: wouldn't that be cool a grand an ems grand rounds like and, and like an agency-wide EMS my agent
1: my agency does it
0: so like in person
1: yes really yep in person or virtual how how often does that occur uh about twice a year Oh, uh, okay. okay, okay yeah. it's not like a long thing it's not an all-day thing it's you know yeah. about four hours and people will submit calls that they've done and Two i've more. done it a couple of my
3: you want to define Grand Rounds for the yeah, uninitiated? that's, fair. that's fair. Okay, yeah,
1: so yeah, for those fair. that don't understand what Grand Rounds is, in my agency, Grand Rounds is where you present unique cases, and you not only present the information about the incident or patient or anything like that, but you also then talk about what was going on and some of the physiological, anatomy, pharmacological background of what happened. So, for example, I gave a... Presentation on a lift assist that turned into a um, right-sided inferior wall MI, and then talked about his whole case had all the information from the hospital, and then talked about why a right-sided inferior wall MI is so dangerous and what can we look for with them. You know, your bradycardia, your blocks. You know, why is why are you going to tank on your preload, stuff like that, and you're educating your peers. On this unique case, not just hey, I ran a cool call. So that's what our grand rounds is. Um, people are presented on trauma cases, medical cases, OB cases. A coworker of mine presented on a prolapse cord. Mm-hmm. You know oh, stuff wow. like that. You know that that yeah. yes, that protocol.
0: And I think it happens in different, by different names in some jurisdictions. Uh, and I just want to give the Wikipedia definition of Grand Rounds. Grand Rounds are a methodology of medical education and inpatient care consisting of presenting the medical problems and treatment of a particular patient to an audience. And then they say consisting of doctors, pharmacists, residents, whatever, but obviously this would be for uh, EMS. When I was a pharmacy sc- a technician at Hopkins, we used to do monthly Grand Rounds and not we, I would just go and eat the free lunch, but uh, <laughs> it would, it was like pharmacy residents that would present on particular topics. And, I, well, I would also say this a lot of th- with the first five minutes I would get something and the r- remaining 55 minutes I was completely lost but it didn't matter because I got something in the first five minutes uh I, I think yeah, that'd be lunch well that too <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, but it'd be interesting because um what if we had something like regular like you know monthly and maybe you know I don't know I just um I'll say I don't remember how we got on this topic what were we I'll, on? I'll
1: tell you how it happens is logistics Mm. Um, not all agencies are set up for it. Uh, we luckily have a very robust uh, in-house CE program, and that's who it goes through because you get CE credit for it. And um, the our academy handles all of it. It's not, you know, on some individual paramedic or person. You know, it's it's kind of a, a big project, and they have a lot of other things going on in that realm that makes it easy to facilitate this kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Wh- we have something um, similar. We don't always present, you know, hospital findings and stuff like that. A lot of that is still the the crew themselves will reach out and stuff. And I mean, we, we, we know more than enough people at hospitals typically uh, to get feedback as to what was going on and stuff. But we'll do um, priority one summaries. So every time you have like a you know high acuity call, uh, one of the things on the all the paperwork we got to fill out afterwards on top of the report. A little uh, thing will pop up saying, hey, priority one call, I'll do a priority one summary and stuff. And it's pretty much a, a summary of the call, what went well, what went bad, things to pass on to the, you know, to other crews and stuff like that. And use it on more or less kind of a uh, an, edu- an educational thing. Maybe you ran some crazy call, you know, somebody dove into something and ended up impaling themselves on a piece of rebar or whatever. Hey, here's the complications. Here's what went well. Here's what didn't go well and stuff like that in hopes that somebody else you know will read that and then if they find themselves in a familiar call not that they've been on that call but they read it to an extent that they at least can in their own mind start thinking "Ah, eh, what what would i do if i ran upon that so and they've kind of already thought about it and stuff so when we're in that situation they're not going to be as shocked to encounter something that they've you know read and kind of like dedicated the uh the brain power to establishing what they might do on there too so so definitely not as in detailed or whatever but still i think it's a great benefit because like i said it allows you to think you know put yourself on that call and imagine uh, how would i treat this guy what would i do um like i said to an extent that if you're exposed to that finally maybe you've already thought about it or researched it hopefully you know kind of spark a little bit of self-study do
3: you guys get kind of credits for that as well i might have missed that if you said that
2: none of no none of that so we'll do like our in-house coneds and stuff like that we yeah. have ideally we have fours which include like a skill we'll have like a combined coned but our conads will also be centered around itls and acls pals and stuff like that and they'll just like stagger years but we'll do a complete skills where we're literally tested on everything that we do protocols our own uh, specific kind of things that we do you go over you know, you know, meds, dosages. You go over different scenario, te- you know, tests you got to go through, and then individual skills, indications, contraindications, uh indications. You know, the the pathophysiology of why you're doing this or why you're giving that. So, and it's everything all encompassing compressed into a certain couple bulleted items that you get tested on. So, but I'm gonna push this at work. Yeah, this is.
1: So you want to hear some good. other great. Huh. Like CEQA things, that, yeah. So, I don't know if, if this is even part of it still. <laughs> doesn't matter, <laughs> but uh, it's all part would, of it. I so think this w- is
0: going to be a shock index, I guess. Y- oh, so we'll 100%. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: so, QA realm uh, not only do we do the grand <laughs> rounds stuff, but we QA, QI, QM, that whole Q case <laughs> in my jurisdiction, we have not only our, our usual. QA type stuff where we're reviewing calls. We, we break them down by STEMI, strokes, uh, arrests, innovations, ALS to BLS downgrades, which I handle. Um, but we use that to then figure out what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, where we need to improve. Obviously, that's your basis of that whole QA, QI, QM. But we're also doing uh, all of our video laryng- uh, copy is reviewed and sent back to the provider. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, We recently went to One Attempt and Done and then King Airway, but we still have to submit every single video, and then we have someone that reviews them and then sends it back to the provider within about two to three days so that you can learn from what you did, Mm. right or wrong, Mm -hmm. and try and improve your skills in the future or pass it on to other people like, hey, this is what I just ran. Like, You actually now have a video of your innovation attempt so it's not just like oh this is what it looked like as you're talking around the kitchen table mm-hmm. uh we also have STEMI trigger assessments so every time we hit STEMI alert on a report we will get feedback on was it a STEMI was it not mm-hmm. what was the follow-on care and we can get more if we want because we also have a patient follow-up submittal where we can do a follow-up on any patient that we have run
3: so I want to talk about QA, QI, QM for a minute um because I know from our previous conversations offline that you and I use the same QA program at work. And um, it's kind of, it's, it's where I work, it's coming out to the field kind of slowly. I'm piloting it. My district is piloting it. And um, I've been trying to be very aggressive in using it. And one thing I've seen people say <clears throat> is that when you send a QA note to somebody, you should always start with something good then provide a gentle correction or whatever, and then finish up on a positive note. Now, the other thing I've seen is that when you um, now, as I say this, I feel like we've had this conversation already. Have we had this conversation? I don't think we talked about okay. QA. Okay, so all right. And uh, the other thing I've seen is that's the the QA sandwich. Like it's the good, you're really not that good, and then the good again. And then it's basically setting somebody up for every time they get a QA note, and it starts off good. They think you're going to criticize them. Um, I try to counteract that by also providing follow up on jobs well done. Um, but I I don't know. You know, I feel like that's maybe being a little too sensitive to say that that QA sandwich thing. Because if somebody needs improvement, or if there's a problem, or even if there's just a minor thing that could be done better and as the supervisor you read that you need to address it somehow you know you can't not address it so what are you supposed to say or do
0: so i have one opinion on that number one at least for us maybe we should it shouldn't be a red flag when you log in, yeah, the, the first the, thing in the, the morning, the red
2: the red box, right? Because <laughs> that like, a, oh automatically
0: no. it's not it's not exactly a soothing thing to right. see first or thing in the morning on your first or trick coming hit. to your email or, or whatever your on your day. phone. Yeah, the other thing I would say is send good QA notes that don't have anything bad.
3: Right? Yeah, I agree.
0: Right? Like I remember getting some pretty nasty QA notes, uh, but when I got when I got those, I would evaluate who the person is, and if they were also complimenting me when I did good stuff and didn't include anything bad, like the compliment sandwich, then I'd be more like, okay, cool. They're also recognizing what I'm doing well, but if you're only communicating and they're both system issues, right? If you're only communicating when something bad is happening and then you're, you feel, then they'll, they'll see right through it and they'll say, Oh, he's only complimenting me because there's something bad. Yeah. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, Yeah. I, I agree. So
1: how we do our QA is we actually don't eat. We take out that whole sandwich. We just start with elaborate more on this. You know, maybe the the narrative just didn't have the meat that we were looking for and there was just stuff that was left out, you know, for whatever reason, you know, here it says you didn't give pain meds. Why didn't you? Oh, no, I did. I just forgot to put it in. Something like that. Or here's my explanation. And sometimes it's stuff that's lost in explanation or lost in describing things. And then if they're
0: in a vague report, like Mike was saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And
1: so then from there we decide, hey, do we need to elevate this to a level of QA? <laughs> you know, level four, level three, two, one, and figure out how do we take it from there. And if we have people that are having issues over and over again, okay, now let's take a look at is it provide is it a uh, ability. Is it knowledge? Is it something outside of the job that is causing issues? And, hey, maybe we need to bring them in and talk and be like, hey, what's going on? You were doing great in these past six months. We've had this issue, this issue, this issue. What can we do to try and fix this? And then we build a packet of improvement, and whether that's clinical skills or stuff outside of that. And we try and rehab the provider to be – Back to where they were, or better.
0: I think a, a key part of that, uh, in my opinion, should be the the only communications via email or via Q A note should be explained further. Yes. Everything else should be a person talking to you, and it shouldn't be a punitive thing like, "Hey, you got to go to the principal's office out of service." It should be, "Hey, let's come have a conversation," or "I come to you, right?" Or, or not. Uh, Ken comes to you and like says, "Hey, what's going on?" I yes. saw this, you explained further, it didn't really meet the threshold that kind of satisfied me, like, can we talk about it? And it should be a collaborative thing, and it, it shouldn't, we shouldn't wait for a rainy day. If it's something good, then we should also, hey, explain further, and then, you, hey, I just really want to come in that you did a damn good job, and you should do a educational opportunity thing
1: so, on it. So, on the, on the good thing, and, you know, some people might have an opinion on this, but... We actually send out surveys uh, to our patients, whether it's telephonic or email, or somehow we get a survey to them, and they push for us to get phone numbers in our reports for the patients so they can send these. And we'll get the feedback from those. If they said, you know, they did great on this, we'll get emails with that in it. I've gotten a recording of a voicemail from a patient, you know, stuff like that. So you're, like, actually hearing that oh these, these patients appreciated the work we did or you know whatever it was um and i i think we're working on the uh, more the the good grams not the nasty grams of like trying to like see the stuff in the reports and like be like hey man you did a great job or hey girl you did a great job so but we're definitely trying to change because we had that nasty gram culture mm-hmm. and we're trying to change that
0: but also, it's not really fair to someone who has the QA reports, who's also uh, upgrading BLS units, who's also running as a frontline supervisor, who also might have to do infraction control stuff, who might also have to do a billion other things
1: too. You just describe you know. my day at work. And no. it, it, it comes <laughs> down to logistics. Like, yeah, our agency or my agency, the QA is outside of the duty officers.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's
1: a whole office for it and there's people f- there f- there's field providers that read the reports but the duty officers are not involved in the QA unless they have to be interesting so now wait. are there duty officers that have the collateral duty within mm-hmm. that yes but it is not their day to day wait so
0: who's doing the QA then people that are
1: it's a variety so we have a a chief that is in charge of the admin side of mm-hmm. EMS and he is the the top part of that QA and then a captain that is QM we are vacant right now for QA, QI captain. And then below them are process managers. I'm one of them. I take care of ALS to BLS downgrades. Mm-hmm. But there's also a process manager for STEMI, uh, innovation, medical arrest.
0: That's not your full-time job, though. No.
1: It's It's something on the side. We mm-hmm. do get compensated for it. Uh, but they want field providers reviewing these, these uh, incidents and these mm-hmm. reports because the field provider may have a different perspective from the person that's been in the office for who knows we how had, long. We
3: actually have a very similar setup. That's pretty cool. But they are they are trying to push it out, um, I think, to the field officers as well, not as an obligation like you must QAX number of reports, but, hey, if you have time, you, if you want to kind of yeah. deal.
1: We also only have two duty officers on at a time. Okay. okay. So they're inundated with running calls, managing hospitals, Handling the day to day issues. Two, e-
0: two EMS duty
1: officers. For, yes.
3: for your whole jurisdiction.
1: Yes. Wow. We, we just got a third, but it hasn't okay. been filled yet.
0: Wow. Is that the equivalent of like an EMS lieutenant? Yes. Okay. But they're captains. Okay. And then, wait, so how do you promote from a paramedic up? You go straight to captain?
1: No. no there's, we're totally different from Baltimore County and Baltimore City.
3: Yeah. Oh, okay. I
1: don't yeah. know if you want to have it offline. No, no, it will have it offline.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting <laughs> things about how different departments do stuff though. Even oh, it, yeah. even in the, you know, the general Maryland DC area, you know, even if you just go from like Philly down to, you know, Richmond and the areas in between you know just how different the fire services you drive are. from Garrett County to Cecil County and right? You
0: drive through a lot of different stuff yeah it's true yeah.
3: It, it's, it's really fascinating you know just going from you know if you start in Ocean City one day and drive out to Frederick you're going to yeah. run through almost every different Kind of department that you can imagine, and that's just in this one little state.
0: And you might see a helicopter fly over if it's not cloudy. And you might exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh. shot. It's all about the low clouds. <laughs> low clouds. Hell, oh, man, this was fun. Do are we do we miss it? Oh, we did miss the or the other resolution, but that's fine. We can talk about that. We
3: later. can do that. Yeah, we. Uh, I don't know.
1: We we'll take a
0: little break. Yeah, we 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 can. Yeah, that's fine.
3: Yeah. I, th- I think you want to just wrap this one up.
0: And yeah, let's uh, just wrap this one up. Okay. Ken. Well, Mike. Cool to have you. We'll have you on oh, soon.
2: Absolutely, man. I was Josh, happy
0: to. Thanks for being back. Happy to no be a part. Ken can finish this out. Don't don't wait, don't tell them to go to anything. Just finish it out.
3: Thank you everyone for listening to Alert Medic 1. Stay safe and please tune in next time. Leave us a like, a rating and a review. Have a good night.
0: You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.